Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I'm thrilled to have Deborah Meyerson back on the show. Last time, Deborah and her co-editor, Annie Pullman, discussed their collection of essays entitled Genocide and Mass Atrocities in Asia. This time around, Deborah is flying solo to talk about her new book, On the Path to Genocide, Armenia and Rwanda Reexamined. The book is a thoughtful attempt to engage previous theories about when and where genocides might occur and to refine and add to them. The historical treatments are well told, and the ideas she puts forward about how genocides happen are exciting. I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk with Deborah about the book. And so, Deborah, welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me again. The last time you were on, we talked a little bit about your background and how you came to be an academic. So I'd, I'd like to start this a little bit differently and and point out that your website says that you research, do research in comparative genocide studies. And so I'm going to ask the easy, very closed-ended question, what does that mean to you? What do you think of when you say comparative genocide studies? And, and, and do you consider yourself a, a historian or a social science or something else? Well, I think a little bit of all of the above. Um, I'm trained as an historian, so I do consider myself an historian, absolutely. But even through that training, my primary interest was always genocide studies, so I very much consider myself um, a comparative genocide studies scholar. Um, and that's often how I will try and sell myself um, because it is in a sort of a new field, absolutely, but it's out there now. There's, there's quite a few of us um, in the field of genocide studies and um, no longer is that field made up perhaps of area studies specialists, um, but many people like myself who... Who, for whom the comparative um, aspect is a key part of our research. Um, so I guess I'd say I'm both a, an historian and a comparative genocide studies scholar, but the nature of the field is, is so interdisciplinary that um, really my, my research, my reading, and even my publications sort of range across that social science spectrum. I, 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 you were very careful to use the word "field" most of those, uh, most of the, through most of that discussion. Um, what is the best way to understand what genocide studies is? It, it, it doesn't. At least you didn't describe it as a discipline. Um, what is it, and what is it for? Look, it's a fascinating question, isn't it? I mean, I think, I think. We've sort of had that first generation of of real the the real founders of the field. Um, I mean, obviously Raphael Lemkin, but then you know Helen Fine, Leo Cooper, those those first 
groundbreaking mm-hmm. scholars that that really perhaps created the field. And I'm not sure if you call it a discipline or, or a field. I, I tend to, to suggest field because it, it's so interdisciplinary in nature. Yeah. If, if you look at the sort of the, uh, the spectrum of genocide studies scholars, there's everyone from lawyers to psychologists to political scientists to historians to anthropologists to sociologists. Um, and in fact, if you look at the sort of... Um, college or university environments where genocide studies courses are taught, you know, sometimes they're in history, sometimes they're mm-hmm. in political science, sometimes they're in, in sociology. And so it's hard, I think, to to suggest it's a discipline, although although maybe it's just terminology. But, but I do think that we've emerged as our own distinctive field now, um, really with, with um, a substantial number of, of scholars for whom this is their, their primary area. So, and, and, and so you've, you've studied in this field and you also advise students. So how is it different to train to do com- genocide studies as opposed to a discipline like history or, or sociology? I think there are real challenges. One of the the challenges is that, at least in Australia, it's not uniformly located within a discipline. So, mm. um, and yet employers looking to employ academics are in, invariably <laughs> looking for a historian or a political scientist or a, an international relations uh, person. Yet b- between universities, genocide studies can be taught in very different schools. So I think I think it's um, a place where. Um, you know, research students and emerging scholars have to be willing to be very flexible, um, and and it's it's kind of a, a difficult aspect of the field um, so far. But I think that that also brings, at least to the research side of it, a tremendous richness. We're not mm-hmm. perhaps siloed within our own limited number of theories and not looking beyond those. You know, to be a genocide studies scholar, you really have to be across a whole range of disciplines and and that can bring really valuable insights. I have to say the first thought that comes to mind is if if I was a prospective graduate student looking at a comparative study, a genocide studies program is, oh my Lord, I'm going to be in school for 12 years learning all of this. <laughs> well, actually, it, um, it's a little faster in Australia to do a PhD <laughs> than in America. And we do love international students. So if anyone out there listening is, is considering... <laughs> um, if only I had met you before I did my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, um, but I mean, I don't think anyone says doing a PhD or, you know, is easy or fast um, mm-hmm. in in any way. So there's got to be that passion and dedication to get through in either case, I think. But to me, what I tell my students is teach everything you can and be flexible so that when it does come time to look for an, an academic position, you've, you've got a broad teaching uh, level of experience that makes you employable. Yeah, I think that's pretty good advice, almost no matter what field you're in at this point in time. Yeah. Um, well, let's turn to the book. Um, 
And I guess I'd start by asking you, because this strikes me, while there's clearly a lot of historical content in the book, this strikes me as a more theoretically informed kind of book than a typical historian would write. So, so why don't, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about what you wanted to do with the book and how comfortable you were with that process. Sure. Look, it was a very exploratory process when I began on the book. I don't mm-hmm. think um, at the start of writing the book, I envisaged it to finish at all the way uh, it did. But what I did go in and come out with was the same key issues. Um, So I went in with the burning question of how do we explain why genocide happens when it does? And I read through the scholarship and and this seemed to me to be an area where there, there was and there still are big gaps. Um, it's kind of one of those paradoxes that that most genocides are predicted one way or another um, and yet kind of unexpected as well. Um, and so uh, it's it's quite difficult to understand the when of genocide. You know, why, why 1915 did the Armenian genocide break out? Why 1994 for the, the genocide in Rwanda, and could someone looking in in advance um, get some sort of ability to predict those issues of of timing? So that was my burning question, and um, the historical case studies and historical material was to try and answer that question by doing a long history. Um, of both the genocide in Rwanda and the Armenian genocide to start to understand how risk developed over time in in order to uh, explore why it culminated when it did in each case. And so why Armenia and Rwanda? Look, I think um, they're two really interesting case studies and there was a few reasons for choosing those two. Originally it was going to be more but I realized that I needed a depth of research um, that was greater than I'd anticipated so I settled on two and I think um, I I chose them for specific reasons. Uh, First of all the Armenian genocides um, really often seen as a paradigmatic Um, case study of genocide Mm -hmm. and that first generation of theories in order to understand what causes genocide, what are the risk factors for genocide, almost all of the uh, theory development included reference to the Armenian genocide. Um, But then when the Rwanda genocide occurred in 1994, much of that theory had already been developed by then. So this often mm-hmm. offered a a case study almost with which to try and apply that theory, you know, did it did it fit um into this new case of genocide. So there was the and, and I think the Rwanda genocide's also become quite paradigmatic uh in its own way in our understanding of of what a genocide is. Um, but there are also other reasons. Um, 
One is that they're very, very different events. Um, you've got one at the opening of the 20th century, one at the closing, one in a period of, of world war, um, one in a period that's not associated with international war. You've got the Armenian genocide really targeting the Armenians on, on religious uh, grounds, um, whereas you've got uh, race or ethnicity as, as a primary issue in Rwanda. So, in fact, there were many um, reasons why they were very different genocides, mm-hmm. and and so that would strengthen any uh, theoretical model to evolve from them. But also, there was probably one more really key reason why I chose those two cases, and that was that um, prior to each genocide you've got a case of massacres um, of more limited violence that didn't escalate into, um, you know, the magnitude of of each genocide. And I wanted to use those um, cases of more limited violence to understand the evolution of risk as um, as part of my broader question. Hmm. Well, for for reasons that aren't worth talking about here, I've ended up team teaching history of science for several semesters now. And one of the things, team teaching it with scientists, and one of the things that's always striking to me as I teach with the scientists is the way that that they emphasize that any theory has to start with a definition. And so, so for your theory and your book, how, how do you define genocide and, and why did you settle on that definition? Sure. Look, I think anyone in genocide studies knows about the the very controversial um, (laughs) issues around how do we define genocide and and obviously there's been an enormous amount of scholarship on this as the field evolved. Um, And so I didn't uh, I didn't want to necessarily go into all that controversy in great length because I think many of the arguments have been had and, and there's mm-hmm. limited benefit. But we do have this legal definition of genocide. We know it's flawed. Uh, we know the United the definition in the United Nations uh, Genocide Convention was reached uh, by a process of political compromise. Um, nevertheless, it's got a strong legal standing. However, it also has some, um, you know, very difficult aspects for if we're trying to study genocide um, as a phenomenon um, aside from as a legal crime. And one of the the most controversial aspects is its exclusion of political groups. Um, So I went for a broad definition of genocide that was based on the United Nations Genocide Convention, um, but a little bit more inclusive um, Mm -hmm. because genocide very often has a strong political component. Um, And I I didn't want to get stuck in, in... you know, minutiae of, of definitions. So I sort of went for the basic UN Genocide Convention definition with a little bit of flexibility to deal with political groups um, if I needed. But I think that there's there's also been a really different issue that's happened with defining genocide just in the last decade. And it hasn't attracted as much attention, but I think it's quite an important issue. And that is that... Um, 
quantity of scholars seeking to uh, build databases to understand mm-hmm. risk of genocide have typically utilised very, very inclusive definitions of genocide um, with the aim of getting many case studies to make their databases statistically um, more robust. Mm -hmm. But I do have some concerns with that because I think if we start defining genocide as a crime that can be of much, much smaller magnitude and duration and uh, so on, then we have to ask ourselves some really tricky questions like, is a massacre that lasts for three weeks and claims 10,000 lives um, qualitatively or quantitatively different from something like the Holocaust? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really difficult issue um, but we one that we really need to be aware of because genocide was originally defined as the crime of all crimes um, and um, I think it's certainly from my perspective I think there is both qualitative and quantitative differences between much more limited outbreaks of um, of extreme violence and a much more global attempt to eradicate a people. Where you draw the line, of course, is a matter of of judgment, <laughs> but I do think that's an issue we have to be aware of. And I, I specifically made in my book uh, the comment that, that I, I was working with a definition of genocide as it's commonly understood, a massive global eradication attempt. As as you point out, there's there's a number of people in the past who have have worked to create theories that explain and predict genocide. Can you you mentioned one kind of approach to this, which is the quantitative. Can you maybe without going into too many specific details, say something about the way these scholars have tried to approach this task of theorizing genocide? Sure. I mean, it's really a case of uh, you know standing on the shoulders of of giants. Uh, when I first came to the field, you know, some foundational work to really understand genocide had already been done, and that was that was of tremendous value to to what I then put into uh, this this book. But I think um, so. We you know we know quite a lot about the broad factors that that cause genocide. Um, you know, things like. Um, having an outgroup that's discriminated against and an internal strife and propaganda and the role of war in um, facilitating genocide onset. Um, so we have this basic, um, we, you know, we have this really foundational understanding that's that's been of tremendous value to the field and, and I'd probably see this contribution as something that, that adds and builds... Um, mm-hmm. On that, but one of the ways it's been done, and it's very, very successful. Uh, but, but perhaps because of that, we haven't really looked at its limitations. Is that a lot of it has been done by working backwards? That is, um, by looking at cases of genocide, the Armenian genocide, the Holocaust, sometimes the Cambodian genocide, 
and saying what were the factors that led up to this genocide. And so, and so that's how you, you build your, your theory um, of what causes genocide. But what, what that omits, perhaps, um, are cases where there, there's been risk of genocide, but, but genocide hasn't emerged. So we're, we're working with a case set where progress towards genocide um, can, can easily be assumed to be linear, and where factors that escalate risk have been the dominant factors. Um, but in at-risk nations, or if we're looking at predicting genocide or understanding the timing of genocide, those aren't always the dominant factors. So my book also tries to go beyond this sort of dominant paradigm in, in how we understand what leads to genocide to look at a broader understanding um, and consider factors that that might not have this sort of linear escalatory quality. Um, well, it seems like a good time then to, to, to give you a chance maybe just to briefly summarize your ideas. You, you told us, the, I believe, the temporal theory. What is that? Um, the temporal theory is uh, an addition to some of the other theories that attempt to understand the causes of genocide and the path that leads to genocide. But it seeks to um, move beyond um, current theories that are out there and, and add something to them. And the element that I was really trying to add to uh, current theories is an understanding of how the risk develops over time. Very few models really include an understanding of time, yet timing is crucial. And it's particularly crucial um, if we are starting to look at issues of genocide prevention. Um, so in the last 10, 15 years, in fact, really since the genocide in Rwanda and, of course, um, all the horrors in the Balkans in the 90s, uh, the international community has really been seeking to put more effort and more energy and more funding into genocide prevention than mm -hmm. ever before. But part of that is if we're going to present, prevent a genocide, we really have to have a solid understanding of how risk of a genocide develops over time and at what points in time can that trajectory of risk perhaps be interrupted. So the temporal model seeks to, to insert what, what can be inserted about timing into models um, of, of the risk of genocide. So it lays out several stages um, or, or factors, and, and I'd just like to kind of hit on a few, um, and we'll see how far we get. And maybe you can explain a little bit about them and um, what you mean by them, and, and if we have time, maybe give an example or two from Armenia or, or Rwanda seems appropriate. Sure. And you start out with something, as you say, that, that virtually everybody who, who thinks about this talks about, and that's the presence of an outgroup. So what is an outgroup and what role does that play? 
Sure. So an ask group, as you say, is well known and it's a group that's commonly excluded um, from the access to the mainstream sense of belonging or rights in society. And and there's been countless outgroups throughout history. The, the Armenians have been a long-standing outgroup. Um, you know, the Jews before the Holocaust, a long-standing outgroup. Uh, Roma, the, the, there's countless sort of um, outgroups. And, and I guess uh, my findings aren't radical in, in that area, that, that this is a key foundation aspect of genocide as many scholars have pointed out but we can also start to see when an outgroup uh, becomes at greater risk than other times and I identify three factors um, one of which is that they're relatively powerless Secondly, when relations between the majority um, of society and the outgroups start to become politicised, um, and thirdly, that there's some kind of legal discrimination. So when those three factors are present, then I think you can start to identify uh, some level of risk of genocide. Um, yeah, um, and and you go on. So so yeah, and you kind of. Well, explain me back back up. One of the things that was really striking to me about this is is the point that this is a situation which is often, anyway, very stable, and you can have a society with an outgroup that does not provoke significant violence above and beyond the kind of ordinary discrimination that they might experience yeah. for decades or centuries. Yes, and and that's something that's been sort of um, often overlooked because if we're if we're trying to look at well, gen, you know, things from a genocide prevention perspective or from a, a sense of trying to stall risk of genocide or de-escalate risk of genocide, that is a really important factor. Um, so you know, the Armenians were a minority in the Ottoman Empire with with outgroup status for, for centuries. Um, but we can start to see um, an escalation in risk uh, when relations between the Ottoman government and the Armenians started to become politicised. And you can really see that escalation very clearly around the time of the Treaty of Berlin in 1878 and, and you get people commenting on it. So, for example, um, you know, you get a, a British consul saying, you know, um, unless the Ottoman government takes great care, there will someday be an Armenian question, just like there's mm -hmm. now a Bulgarian question, um, which had obviously just led to the, uh, the war there. So... You can start to see how how that stability began to be broken down, but even at that point, um, even with that risk factor with relations politicised, you've still got a tremendous level of, of stability and, and obviously there's a really long time between 1878 and 1914 um, or 1915 rather um, when we start to see the Armenian genocide. So... Um, it's it's can be a very stable long term factor, um, which in many ways offers hope in terms of how you address that before escalation. And it yeah, and it it reminds me anyway of the the 
never uh, – the, the question is always there or the issue that is always there, which is of resources, right? Because one of the fundamental issues with genocide prevention is a, a scarcity of resources, both physical resources and kind of emotional resources. And and so it is important to identify situations that are stable and situations that are not. So to go back, you, you suggest then that that there's a couple things that may destabilize this. And you've hinted at this already. Significant internal strife is one. And then the the formation of a perception of the outgrowth as outgroup, sorry, as posing a kind of existential threat to the dominant powers. How might that happen that a group suddenly or or gradually becomes perceived as an existential threat? It can happen in a range of ways and they're not always predictable. Um, mm. So so you you have these situations of, of internal strife and difficulty. Um, but then a, a clear sign of escalation that's perhaps less recognized in the scholarship than, than something like outgroups is this perception of of existential threat. So in the Ottoman Empire, we see this um, when there starts to be, um, you know, involvement by the great powers of, of the great powers of Europe in the Armenian question. Um, and the Ottoman government really perceives this as a threat to its sovereignty. Um, so suddenly it's, it's seeing this minority as actually quite threatening. Um, was this threat real to some extent? Was it perhaps also manipulated um, by the Ottoman government itself as a justification for persecution? Almost certainly. Um, so there's this, also this kind of dialectical process uh, where it's about perception um, mm-hmm. as much as about reality. Now, in Rwanda, you have um, this perception of existential threat arising very, very differently. Um, so, for example, in, in 1990, when you get the RPF, uh, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, invading Rwanda, um, seeking, you know, to repatriate that second that second generation of, of Tutsi refugees seeking to, to repatriate back into the country. Um, you get the Rwandan government perceiving that as, as a clear threat to its its power. But then you also get it um, playing with that threat to some extent. So you get, you know, the, the fake attack on, on Kigali and um, the Rwandan government um, issuing public statements to suggest it's a much stronger threat than it really was in that that period in late 1990, um, because it justifies an increase in repression and persecution. Um, so it's a very interesting factor, but it's it's actually not so much about what legitimately can be acknowledged as existential threat, but how it's perceived um, and how it's used by governments. And so you talk about, and I I have to say, I found this really interesting. You you suggest that there is, at least in the cases of Rwanda and Armenia, and, and probably often, there is a sequence of, um, escalation and retreat, 
uh, escalation in terms of the way the the kinds of discrimination or or force used against the outgroup by the the people in authority, the government or, or, or other parts of society, so that you get massacres and then retreat, and more massacres later and then retreat, and it's. It's a it's a cyclical way of understanding what's going on, except in the sense that each massacre, as at least as I read your book, each massacre kind of further prepares people emotionally and practically to go further the next time. Mm. Yes, um, and I think that this is a really important part of understanding how risk of genocide develops over time, but that perhaps really hasn't been adequately explored in the scholarship before and also helps us understand this this paradox of why people often can point to countries and say there is a real risk of genocide happening there but then are unable to quantify when that risk might be realized and that's because mm. there are these these cyclical events um, of more limited outbreaks of violence and then most the most common um, thing to happen even at that point is a process of retreat. So just to give some e- examples, um, you know, so you see the raising of the um, of the um, Armenian question in 1878 um, in the Ottoman Empire, and then you see. Um, you know, a, a famine in 1879 and 1880 that out, that breaks out in Armenia, and and the government really being as aggressive as possible in um, magnifying the suffering um, and ensuring that it was very bad and not taking any steps that that could quite easily have been taken to ameliorate the famine. Um, and so you can see this is um, a government that was quite constrained by by its very limited power in in at, in that period, and yet being as aggressive as possible. And then things settled down until again in the early 1890s, you get this this new process of of escalation, and then you get the terrible Hamidian massacres in in which mm-hmm. you know you're talking about um, you know something like 200,000 people killed um, between 1894. And 1896. I mean, these were just terrible massacres. But then again, there's this process of of retreat, um, and then you have a, a sort of a localized process of escalation in 1909 in Adana, and you get massacres there. And then again, a process of retreat until you actually see the Armenian genocide in 19. 19- Fifteen, And so you can see many cycles of escalation and retreat and you can, you can track that same sort of process um, in Rwanda but also in other cases of genocide um, and see how this cycle itself does really prime a society to be prepared to go that next step further. So why the retreats? What what's acting to stop the violence? Well, I think this is where it gets really interesting and perhaps also offers opportunities mm-hmm. to interrupt that trajectory that can that can ultimately result in genocide. Um so there's a number of reasons for retreat. Um one is 
um, and it's a very important one, is a, a calculation of power. Um, mm. So for a genocide to occur, there has to be a tremendous power disparity between the aggressors and the, the victims. Um, and sometimes genocidal or potentially genocidal regimes don't have the power to even contemplate genocide. Uh, so, for example, you look at, say, the Hamidian massacres in the late, yeah, sorry, in the 1890s, um, and you've got um, quite a weak empire. Um, you've got um, limited organisational ability from the centre. You've got um, a potential threat of international intervention. So the the Ottoman government is is quite wary of the possibility of international intervention from the great powers of Europe and what this might do to to the the sovereignty of the Ottoman Empire. So. Um, in this case, you can see that there's perhaps not quite sufficient power disparity for the Ottoman government to be able to contemplate a sort of a radical exterminatory agenda with impunity. Um, mm -hmm. so, so power is a really important one, along with the capacity to actually conduct the genocide. Actually conducting genocide takes tremendous resources, organization, um, so on and so forth. And, and the classic example of that is, is the Holocaust where Hitler really um, um, you know, put the resources of Nazi Germany into killing the Jews rather than winning the war because it takes that amount of resources to to commit extermination on on that scale and so there's a there's capacity issues but you can also look at um ideological factors um so sometimes there isn't that level of extremist ideology and you can see that in the if we continue with the hamidian example um the armenians had a place in the late Ottoman Empire. There was the millet system. They were uh, a discriminated against people, a dimmy people, where they had a lower place than the Muslim majority, less uh, rights, um, extra taxes, so on and so forth. But there was perceived that as long as they kept to that place, they did have a legitimate place in that society, whereas um, in the case of a genocide, there's no perceived legitimate place. Um, and so, you know, in the case, for example, of, of uh, Nazi Germany, there was no place for Jews whatsoever. Um, you know, the, the, their theories of racial superiority demanded that, that these inferior peoples be completely exterminated. So you have these um, ideological factors playing an important role as well. And and so I guess uh, any of those three factors, sort of the power um, disparity, the capacity to conduct genocide and the ideological factors can make a situation more likely to um, return to some stability or undergo a period of retreat after a limited outbreak of violence rather than escalate into a, a really exterminatory um, ideology and, and proposal uh, to completely annihilate a group. 
I, as I was reading this, I, I find myself, and I don't know whether this was a good metaphor or not, but thinking of you describing genocide studies and, and efforts to prevent, uh, to theorize genocide as, as kind of being a, a geographer or a, a geologist, sorry, or, or a seismographer. Somebody is trying to predict earthquakes and seeing waves come and not being sure at any one moment whether this was a small tremor that was going to alleviate some of the pressure and the plates would, would come to rest for a while or whether this is a precursor to a much bigger explosion. Um, how, how do you go about trying to think about that as you see, as you watch these smaller, I mean, smaller is maybe an unfair term since some of these were really large uh, outbreaks of violence, but, but how do you try and wrestle with that question of what this particular incident is? It's a very difficult question. And that's why I think that in these early stages of um, risk, Mm-hmm. Um, it is, you know, fundamentally very difficult to predict genocide um, and, you know, predict which of those tremors is foretelling the big quake. Um, and because in many ways you do really have to have a perfect storm for this to lead to to an escalation. And it's a relatively rare outcome, much limited Outbreaks of violence are much, much more more common. Um, you can, however, start to recognise um, when the, the factors when there's likely to be an um, an escalation. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the distance between um, escalation and genocide in terms of time is often quite short. So when a country or a dominant power reaches this crossroads of, well, are we going to take the next step here and 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 plan, start to plan a genocide? Or are we going to retreat? Um, while retreat is much more common, if... If that decision is made to, to escalate, you might only be 18 months from a genocide. And this is where it becomes very difficult to predict. Um, but perhaps also is where there is a real opportunity to interrupt a, a, a trajectory that has the potential to escalate because this, this is a really a crucial point where an almost strategic decision, you know, an ideologically informed decision, absolutely, but an almost strategic decision might be made. You know, can we can we get away with it if we want to deal with this mm. minority in this mm-hmm. terrible way? Or, you know, who is watching? Or, you know, do we have the capacity? These, this is where the decisions are made and where, they're, where for example, strong international engagement um could make a critical difference um, in that decision-making process, and you almost you almost see this in in Rwanda. You know, Prunia talks about the sort of the trial massacres that happened in mm-hmm. the early nineties. 
in Rwanda where where the Happy Aramana government was looking closely to see how the international community reacted, to see how key allies like the French reacted. Um, and the the lack of a strong international response undoubtedly facilitated um, the idea that, that perhaps it was feasible to... to deal with this troublesome Tutsi minority once and for all as, as they might have been thinking. Um, and so this is a really a critical moment um, of escalation or retreat um, where things can lead to a radically different outcomes. So, so I have several thoughts. Uh, that are that, that that are prompted by what you've just said, and I'll, I'll one of them I want to put to put to the side for the for just a moment, which is about the pace of escalation, uh, which we'll come back to. But but I'm struck by the language you use, the idea that these are strategic decisions, um, and I know when I teach genocide, uh, comparative genocide in in my classroom, it's the students often have an enormously difficult time conceiving of genocide as something that might be considered rational and strategic as opposed to emotional or ideological or irrational. Mm. And I know there's a question in there somewhere. I'm not really sure where it is, but but I'm struck by... Yeah, go ahead. Look, I think genocide is all of those things. Um... It is emotional, it is irrational, it is uh, fundamentally ideological most of the time, but there is also um, absolutely quasi-rational decision-making and strategic decision-making involved in there. I mean, even a a genocide as ideologically extreme as as the Holocaust, you see uh, Hitler making very strategic decisions about when to escalate things, when not to escalate things, um, so on and so forth. So we have to accept, as painful as as it is, um, that there is this kind of strategic element and and I think what these two case studies in the book really showed me is that it it happens quite early on in the process at this critical moment of of do we escalate or or do we retreat where these strategic um, decisions are made and so often case it's often the case that you know if a regime really doesn't have the capacity to even contemplate an escalation, the extremist ideology won't develop um, because these strategic mm. decisions are, are made quite early on. A regime won't even sort of really consider genocide if, if, if those power elements are missing, if those, those capacity elements are missing because they know it will lead to certain defeat. Um, so there has to, and often these calculations are, are very skewed. I mean, one has to wonder if if the um, you know extremists in the Rwanda government really thought they'd get away with killing all mm. the Tutsis with impunity. But I mean, then you look at cases like Darfur, um, and you see 
precisely that, you know, a, a genocide conducted with impunity. Um, and so it's, it's a strange calculation. Um, and I think it is very difficult to get one's, one's head around, but these are not purely ideological calculations. There, there really is this element of, of strategy involved. And you talk so so to get back to that second second issue that one one of the things you you talk about in the in the book is a kind of extension of this 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 idea is this that that what frequently happens at this point in the process is the emergence of a genocidal ideology accompanied by an extensive propaganda campaign to spread that ideology and and, and to uh, extend an understanding of the outgroup. How does that happen so quickly? It's um, a very interesting phenomenon. I think it often has a longer background that, you know, there has been this, these repeated incidents of, of cyclic escalation and retreat and, and um, repeated incidences of perceptions of, of the group as an existential threat. Um, so there's often this sort of background undercurrent of discrimination, of, of racism, of persecution. And one of the things that those cyclic um, cycle, the, the, those cycles create can be a perception in the mainstream society that it's this group that's always causing the problem um, mm. and that, a, I guess, a final solution must be found. Um, so if every time there's there's internal strife, somehow the 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 outgroup is is blamed or linked in some way to the problem. Um, there can be this this background perception over time that that this is the cause of all the problems. Um, but then you do have these very um, Rapid. Once a sort of a decision to escalate has been made, or almost at the same time, um, it's a dialectical process. I think um, you have this this very rapid escalation of of propaganda and of incitement, and and a lot of people, a lot of scholars out there have recognised that this is a real danger sign. There is not that long between an extensive propaganda campaign between uh, once incitement starts and the outbreak of um, um, you know, potentially genocidal violence. You might be looking at 18 months. Um, so this is a a very clear warning sign that the dominant power is um, planning something very nasty indeed. And then the last last uh, point in this process I was really struck by because most of these other steps that you identify are fairly predictable and I don't know if logical is the right word, but, um, but your last point is pretty simple, right? That, that once you get to the outbreak of genocide, things are determined on the ground with particular moments and decisions or events that maybe can't actually be predicted if you're looking at the micro scale. Absolutely. And look, this was kind of surprising to me too, that you will see um, a nation sit almost on the cusp of genocide, often for some months um, before there's that final escalation. Um, hmm. So you see this in Rwanda, you see, you know, 
um, the the Arusha Accords having been agreed on, their implementation being continually delayed, and this this sort of there was really widespread recognition that this was a, a country on the cusp. It was going to go one way or the other, but it kind of didn't go one way or the other for several months. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's because actually committing to starting a genocide is a, a huge thing. Um, and and so you... But what actually determined that final escalation, you know, I mean, obviously you've got the plane being shot down, but that's a very local event mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. really unpredictable. Um, and in the same sort of way, you know, you, you can really see um, the young Turks from, from you know, late 1914, you know, making these escalatory steps, you know, the de- de- um, disarm the Armenians, you know, men are being taken out to quiet places and, and shot. Um, but that actual sort of... It, it really sort of sat on the cusp before there was that actual decision made to let's take this further. Um, and and the factors that drove that were surprisingly local. So I think once you're sitting on the cusp there, it's, it's an extremely dangerous place to be, but the actual triggers there are unpredictable. Um, and... It's a case of of the powers looking for triggers as well, absolutely. So at that point, um, it's it's extremely difficult to de-escalate a situation because you've got a government that's invested heavily um, in a genocidal outcome um, and is just looking for a trigger. Um, And that can almost be anything, really, and it can be one that's created by the government itself. And that maybe points us to the the one last big question I have, and that's that theories theories are supposed to be useful. And you've hinted at some of these things already, but I'll give you a chance to kind of be more systematic about it. What what does this theory suggest to us about how genocide prevention should be structured or understood or practiced? I think it suggests a number of things, and I think perhaps the most important of them is that we need to understand risk of genocide not as a sort of linear progression, but as a dynamic interaction between factors that promote risk um, and factors that promote resilience, factors that might in fact limit risk. And so when I'm talking about genocide prevention, um, I don't see it as a... Uh, a static intervention that needs to happen at a set point. I see it as actually managing at-risk nations over time. And I think we can actually track some of these risk factors and we can start to pit them against factors that might forestall risk or promote resilience. And I think it's as much a matter of managing that right relationship between risk and resilience over time with the idea of, of slowly working towards de-escalation um, rather than what is often the current perception of how you 
you might stop a genocide, which is that you know massive military intervention on the cusp of genocide. Um, so, in one sense, the temporal model can provide great hope. I think it mm -hmm. suggests that risk of genocide is actually something that's very long term that can be quite stable over time. And this suggests that there are really great opportunities to intervene in that trajectory well before, um, you know, I, uh, ideal, extremist ideology emerges. Um, so things like, for example, um, you know, one of the things is that's often suggested is education for tolerance. And that's something that might take generations to work. But if we look at those early risk factors, we actually see that there often is generations um, between the emergence of risk and the actual genocide itself, suggesting that... Um, you know, intervening in an early time with uh, before there's a radicalization when when countries might be quite open to the idea of of something like education for tolerance um, might have potential. Um, hmm. But we can also see that further down the track, there are continued opportunities to manage this relationship between risk and resilience. But then I think it also highlights why last-minute crisis interventions have a, a mixed record at best. Mm. And I'm not just talking about military interventions there. I'm talking about, you know, crisis diplomacy, um, you know, when you get your UN Secretary General go in at the point of incitement and try and make a difference. You see that actually that's a high-risk strategy because you're already dealing with dominant powers who've invested to some extent in an extreme outcome um, and it's much more difficult to stop at that point. So I think the temporal model both highlights that there is an inherent unpredictability about risk of genocide but also that it's not a linear process, that there are points of retreat and there are ways to encourage points of retreat. Um, um, so I see both um, hope in the temporal model, but also recognition that once you're at the very late stages, intervention is fraught with, with difficulty. Well, it's a great book. Um, Thank you. And I very much enjoyed reading it. And I have to say, as a, as a historian myself, I, I have an enormous admiration for somebody who's trained as a historian and can continue to be historically thoughtful and um, and to stay within that discipline and yet be kind of rigorously analytical in the way you are in this book. I'm not sure I could pull that off. But we have taken a lot of your time. Um, so I'd like to end just with a couple really quick questions. And the first is just to give you a chance maybe to tout a book for people listening to the podcast. Um, what do you think they should read? Maybe it's a, a classic that was really influential to you. Maybe it's a new book that you found really interesting. As a historian, I am a big fan of the classics. And I think, um, you know, some of the, the foundational um, people in the field really contributed so much. Um, mm -hmm. I got a lot of my inspiration from, from Leo Cooper. Um, mm -hmm. who does suggest the importance of, of looking at, at non-genocidal case studies or case studies 
of limited violence alongside genocide. Um, so I think anything by Leo Cooper is is well worth reading um, at one end of the spectrum. At the other end of the, the spectrum, for people interested in, in genocide prevention, um, there's a great edited book called Genocide, Risk and Resilience that's, that's starting to build on these, these ideas I've talked about of resilience and that, that's by Palgrave and it came out last year, I think. Hmm. Um, I, I recommend that. And there's also some great new work coming out. Um, the Auschwitz Institute for Peace and Reconciliation has a great book coming out early next year called Reconstructing atrocity prevention um, and that book has really been designed um, to be the cutting edge of genocide prevention uh, so I'd recommend that as well I'll have to put that on what turns out to be a very len- lengthy reading list I'm not sure I'll actually have a chance to teach this semester but <laughs> I'm not sure whether my students would appreciate that or not <laughs> so the last question then I-, I suspect you know is what are you working on now Actually, I'm really working on this area of of how do we understand what promotes resilience to genocide better. Uh, So my next book, which I'm I'm completing the manuscript of, as we say, no one's ever starting a manuscript, we're all completing it, Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, is tentatively titled Exploring Resilience to Genocide. And I'm actually looking at eight case studies where there was really well-documented risk of genocide where people or experts have gone, gee, I think this one could turn really bad. And then, in fact, it hasn't happened. Um, So I'm looking at these eight case studies of of risk of genocide where it hasn't materialized. And so we can possibly um, infer from that that processes of resilience have dominated. And I'm looking at those case studies and trying to determine, you know, are there case-specific factors? Are there cross-situational factors? And can we learn anything from these these examples um, of how we can avert genocide in, in at-risk nations? So I'm, I'm really enjoying that project at the moment. And um, maybe one day in the long future, um, I might be lucky enough to come back uh, a third time <laughs> for new books in genocide studies. <laughs> Well, I would love to have you back, um, and I'm sure you will finish the book, although I have to say, having having heard you say earlier in the show that you initially planned more than two case studies for the present book and then decided yes. that that was too ambitious, laying out a project with eight case studies <laughs> strikes me as um, perhaps I'm, not learning I'm the ambitious. lessons that. <laughs> that's right. But I hope that's... Uh, that that goes well and when it's done I would love to have you back on the show but thank you so much for joining us and to the listeners I think it's a wonderful book I highly encourage you reading it Uh, and Deborah have um, a wonderful remainder of um, well what is summer here which is not summer there I suppose so but anyway thanks so much for joining us thank you Kelly and thank you very much for your time all right take care bye